in order to say I grew up in an abusive childhood, you have to say my parents were abusers. Mm. And that's a very hard thing to do because there's never any black or white, you know, and there was mental illness in the case of, of my mother. And so it was confronting. My sister did have therapy a number of years later. And I, I remember this because she called me up and she, I said, how did you go? And she said, did you know that ours is a case of child abuse? And I said, yeah, I did. And she was like, spin out. <laughs> you know, That was the way she spoke, spin out. And there was like a pause between us and then just this sadness. She said, it's true though, isn't it? And I said, yeah, look, it's true. And it's not about blame, but it is about understanding where you've come from so that you can start the healing process. Today's guest, Leah Waters, grew up in a tiny town in Australia, 800 people, and spent the better part of her childhood playing the role of protector of her siblings from physical and emotional abuse from her parents. That led to a lot of different ways of coping, some of them pretty physically destructive. Yet she latched onto what she sensed and knew was a fierce sense of intellect and ended up going to school, pursuing her PhD in psychology. But it wasn't until she got exposed to the world of positive psychology and strength-based psychology in particular that a lot of things began to really change in her mind. And when she herself was about to become a parent, she realized that she wanted to take a very different look at both the world, the way that she practiced her profession, the way that she would end up teaching as a professor at the University of Melbourne, and the way that she was as a parent, raising a family. That led her down the rabbit hole of positive psychology and strength-based parenting became a field that she has done a bunch of research in and written a fantastic new book called The Strength Switch, which is all about strength-based parenting. And really powerful conversation, not only because she was incredibly transparent about her own journey and, and some recent loss that she suffered and how she's sort of dealing with it and navigating it, but also because the work that she's doing is so critically important, both to how we understand ourselves as parents in the world, how we understand how to flourish in the world, and just how we understand how to be human beings in a rapidly changing world. Really excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. 
hosted by Juliana Ertube, a special education expert. This season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. We're going to dive into a lot of your work currently, which is around strength, strength-based parenting, positive mm-hmm. psychology. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious, though, because you have devoted so much of your adult career to this and to focus on families and kids and how positive psychology interacts with that. As a kid, mm-hmm. w- was any of this the genesis of your upbringing? A hundred percent the yeah. genesis of my upbringing, but maybe not in the way that you would imagine. Okay. I think that a lot of people... Because of the work I do, because of the field that I'm in, make the assumption that, well, you must have had a very positive childhood, you must have had strength-based parents. For me, I mean, I like I said, I grew up in a small country town. I grew up with a mother who had a very severe mental illness. And so in my childhood, she spent time in and out of psychiatric institutions, multiple suicide attempts. And this was in the 70s, so there was no conversation about these things there was she my father didn't really know what to do so it was it was a family secret Mm. and so mom would just kind of vanish for chunks of time yeah she would and and there were times in our childhood where things were okay my father was a school principal so he we had lovely summer family holidays Mm. he spent a lot of time at work long hours as a school principal There were times where things were okay, but there were also times in my childhood where things were really not okay. A lot of erratic behavior from my mum. And when she wasn't coping so well, a lot of aggression, a lot of physical violence. And I'm the oldest of three children. So I just took on a lot of responsibility at a very young age to essentially be the parent to uh, my sister's 15 months younger, my brother's five years younger, and also be the parent to my mother. And so that was a huge responsibility to try and manage the emotions of someone who has very erratic emotions and step in and protect my brother and my sister in those times where things were out of control and, as I said, a lot of physical violence and so a lot of psychological violence too, actually. And the the physical violence ended as we grew bigger and older, the the psychological violence that's still continuing. And I think of the two, that's the harder one because it's invisible and it doesn't leave a fingerprint and it's very hard to explain to other people what's happening. But I took on this responsibility and so that was challenging and I was required to step up into a role that I was not, I didn't have the resources 
Yeah. I didn't have the intellectual resources, the emotional resources to be doing the role that I was doing. Are we talking about your single-digit years, early teens? Mm, or do you both, have a recollection all. of even in those years? Yes, I have a lot of recollections yeah. as a young child. And um, then certainly my teenage years, the, the, the memory is stronger. And so when I was 15, I developed an eating disorder and I became bulimic. And I was bulimic for seven years. My younger sister was also bulimic as well. And I understand now that this is going to sound sort of counterintuitive, but it was a coping mechanism. So it's perverse, but it allowed me to cope with the situation that I was in because I would use food, particularly the binging part of bulimia, to, it was, it was a, an emotional suppression tool. So I would binge and that would push down fear and sadness and shame and everything would be numb for a while and then self-loathing would creep in and so then I would purge and I'm not going to go into the details of purging but it's a really brutal process. Mm. Were you and your sister both aware of each other doing this? Or? Do you know we, we never spoke about it at the time. As adults we spoke about it later on but I knew because we shared a bathroom mm. and she knew as well. But there was a lot of collusion in the family. There's a lot of we just don't talk about anything that's going on. So when I was doing my PhD, I did, I was, I just had, you know, you have those like inflection points in your life where something pretty small, which could just fly by without you noticing and you grab onto it and it changes things. It changes your course. So I was doing a neuropsychology course and the professor was talking about this brain disorder called Wernicke-Korsakoff disorder. And it's a degenerative disorder of the brain and it's related to long-term lack of vitamin B. So it's quite a common disorder for long-term alcoholics. Mm. And he just made this throwaway line. He said it, it can also occur with people who have long-term eating disorders. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks, this, this almost casual line, almost like an afterthought. And so I'm sitting in this PhD program. The only thing that I knew I had, the only resource that I knew I had at that stage was intellect. And intellect had allowed me to do well at school. School was like a safe haven for me. And I didn't tell anyone at school what was going on because school was my happy place and it was predictable and there were routines and I did well and I was praised. So I had this moment where I was like, whoa, I don't want to lose my intelligence because it's got me through. It allowed me to do well at school. It got me out of a small country town to go up to Melbourne to study at a university. I don't want to lose this. And so that's where I first started therapy. I was doing a PhD in psychology, but I st first started my therapy myself at the age of 22 and um, started working with a psychiatrist, was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm, from all the up and the, everything that happened with your mom. Yeah. Did you have any sense that you might be suffering from that level of trauma? I did not. And it, it's sort of embarrassing to say because I was studying a PhD in psychology. I think I knew that things were pretty deeply wrong with my family, but the word trauma was not something that I would have thought of. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me now. but And I was very resistant, actually, initially. I was like, no, no, this isn't about abuse. This isn't about trauma. And but working with a psychiatrist really helped me to see that, that that was the case of our childhood. And so 
I worked with him and I overcame the eating disorder and that was a really important step in the healing journey. When you were doing that work yourself, Mm -hmm. I'm curious whether that also triggered, okay, so if this is me and I'm doing this Mm -hmm. and my sister was doing the same thing and Mm -hmm. the same behavior, Mm -hmm. like maybe she's actually suffering the same PTSD. Yeah. And at the time I reached out to my brother and my sister about, look, this is what's happening. This is the diagnosis. And it took me a long time to accept that sort of diagnosis because in order to do that, you really have to, in order to say, I grew up in an abusive childhood, you have to say my parents were abusers. Mm. And that's a very hard thing to do because there's never any black or white, you know, and there was mental illness in the case of of my mother. And so it was confronting. My sister did have therapy a number of years later. And I, I remember this because she called me up and she, I said, how did you go? And she said, did you know that ours is a case of child abuse? And I said, yeah, I did. And she was like, spin out. <laughs> you know, That was the way she spoke, spin out. And there was like a pause between us and then just this sadness. She said, it's true though, isn't it? And I said, yeah, look, it's true. And it's not about blame, but it is about understanding where you've come from so that you can start the healing process. So it's been a process for my brother and my sister too. And look, we've all handled it in, a, in our different ways. So for me, overcoming the eating disorder was very important start. But then I had a, a decade of intermittent anxiety and depression. And I think partly because I wasn't using food anymore mm-hmm. to suppress the emotion. So they had to find other ways of coming forward and my sister also, she overcame her eating disorder. She also suffered from a lot of depression and anxiety. And I grew up to become a psychologist and my sister grew up to become a social worker. Mm. But very sadly, I lost my sister to suicide earlier this year. Mm, so sorry. Yeah. It's, um, it's hard for me to talk about, but I feel like I should because I know I just think that we don't have enough honest and open conversation about mental illness, about suicide, about trauma, about abuse. And we, I feel that we need to just be talking about this more openly and more honestly, maybe to help people to prevent it. Um, in my case, to give dignity to my sister because, I mean, it's, I'm a very articulate person and I'm a professor, I speak all across the world, I'm a writer, I've never struggled with words. But I do not have words to describe the pain of losing her in that way. But I also don't want to keep it a secret because I'm not ashamed of what she did and I don't want to feel like it's something that I don't talk about because I feel like somehow that's me saying I'm ashamed and I'm not ashamed of her. I'm so proud of her. She she grew up to be a beautiful person. She helped a lot of people. She worked with prisoners. She worked with the homeless She worked with kids on the street, foster children, adults who have intellectual disability. And I'm not angry with her. I really, truly understand why she made the decision that she made. She she just carried so much pain for such a long time. And she just got to a point where she, she couldn't see a way out. But she's at peace now. And so my role... Well, I'm not sure if it's my role, but where I'm at now is she's 15 months younger. So 
I can't remember what my life was like without her. And so I'm at a point of just readjusting, recalibrating, particularly because my role was to protect her. And she has a 20-year-old son, so he and I are now sort of learning to adjust to life without her. And I just want to honour her legacy. She was a social worker. I was a psychologist. I now do work into, like, how do you create happy families? She worked with homeless kids, foster care kids, and I, in, in my own way, I'm just continuing on with her work. But that's a long way of saying to you that everything I do now is 100% based on uh, my own childhood, but maybe not so much in the, I know what it's like to have positive parenting, strength-based parents. I had this great gift. I had this great fortune, and I want to share that with other people. It's more to do with making meaning of the trauma and the suffering, mm. not blaming, not accusing, you know, having dignity and honour in the whole process, but using my strengths in ways that help to give other families a chance that my own family didn't have. Yeah. I mean, having been through what you've been through also, not that you'd sort of wish this to be the process, but having, I would imagine it also, it has given you a certain empathy. Yeah. You know, because you can sort of look at things from the inside out, not just the outside in, because it's yeah. in some way, some of the people, I'm sure many of the people you work with, you have lived a part of their experience. Yeah, absolutely. It's given me a lot of intuition. It's given me a lot of empathy, a lot of compassion. And, you know, where strengths, I research strengths and, you know, I create strength-based family programs and those kinds of things. But where strengths were important in my own journey was worked with a psychiatrist, overcame an eating disorder, worked with a psychologist with the depression and the anxiety. And at that point in time, my field, the field that I was trained in psychology, was very deficit-oriented. So it was very much about healing and I needed to be healed, but it was about working through trauma, abuse, maladaptive thinking. And in my early 30s, the, the field of positive psychology was a very new field at that point in time. And I was pregnant with my first child, Nick, who's now almost 15 and has recently just got taller than me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, a, that's an interesting little moment where you're baby, all of a sudden you have to look up to ask them like, you know, do you want a milkshake? And this field came forward and just, again, one of those inflection points where I bought Marty Seligman's book, Authentic Happiness. Right. I read it sort of uh, with a bit of professional curiosity. Yeah, because when that came out and when he, you know, like took his seat originally as head of the APA, mm. it was not considered, this was like, it was almost heresy. <laughs> yes, it was. In in some fields, it yeah. was. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, when I started as an example of that, when I was building the Centre for Positive Psychology at the University of Melbourne, there was hostility directed towards me from people in my field. And I had a conversation with someone, I was trying to build the centre and I was sort of going out and getting philanthropic money and business support and government support to build this centre. And and there were some of the psychology researchers at my university who were very hostile towards me for building a centre in this field that they thought was lightweight, not relevant, not aligned to what a psychologist should be doing. So yeah, it was new thinking. And I read the book and I just, I had a, this light bulb moment where I'm like, wow, you know, because his call was we, if we're only ever fixing what is wrong with someone, then our profession is half-baked. And we have this great ability and knowledge set to also help build up what is right in someone. 
And I, that had never occurred to me. And I was a trained psychologist and I, you know, done a PhD in psychology and I've had therapy myself. And it just never occurred to me at a personal level to ask myself this question, what is right with me? I knew a lot about what was wrong with me. Um, and I knew I had weaknesses and I experienced mental illness. And <laughs> I remember um, a GP I was working with once because I've had a lot of physical ill health too and autoimmune issues and which often go along with traumatic childhood. And I remember him sort of saying, well, some people are cactuses and some people are orchids and you're an orchid. And I was like, great. <laughs> like, Thanks. What do I do with that? <laughs> I know. I'm, you know, I'm very precious and I have to be in the right environment. And look, that is just the reality, but orchids can be really beautiful if you do give them the right environment. Mm. And so I had this idea. I was like, well, I've never thought about what is right with me. And and I, as I said, I was pregnant with my son and I felt very confident in raising him that if there was troubles in his life, I'm very well qualified to help him with that. But I was also hopeful that he wouldn't not, certainly not have the troubles that I had gone through. Everyday, you know, troubles, yes, because that's part of life. It's night and day, light and dark, yin and yang. But I wasn't. I, I thought, well, what if life is going well for him? My training in psychology doesn't teach me anything about how to help him amplify what is right with him and, and how to help him make the most of life when it's going well. And so I sought out a strength-based psychologist and there weren't many at that point in time. And I went along to see him and he did the normal thing. So you know, when you have therapy, the first sort of two sessions are really just a patient history and presenting problems. And and he didn't say much. He took a lot of notes. And I, I never forget because... At the end of the second session, he put his pen down and he looked at me, he just looked at me straight in the eye and he said, have you got any idea how strong you are to have survived what you have survived, to have stayed open-hearted, to have, you know, intentionally become a good person, to have these long-term stable relationships, to have done a PhD, like there's such strength in you to have done that. And... <laughs> my husband jokes with me because for me that was like this profound moment where no one had ever said to me, you're strong. I'd always been told, you're an orchid, you're weak, you fall easily, and much worse things than that too in my childhood. But my husband does joke because he's like, well, you did go and see a strength-based psychologist, so it's probably not <laughs> that unusual that he told you you were strong. Right, selection bias. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And um, still. <laughs> but still, you know, yeah. It just unlocked something inside of me because I had created a good adult life. And Matt, my husband, we started dating when I was 20 and we've been together ever since. So I've had this safely attached relationship and beautiful long-term friends. And I had a lot of love, I had, but I didn't have anyone saying you're strong. And what he did more importantly was over the course of that therapy, helped me to put a spotlight on my particular strengths. And he helped me to see that during my childhood and during my teenies, I left home when I was 17, that I'd been drawing on all of these strengths to help me navigate and survive and to help me take care of my younger brother and my younger sister and, you know, to help me to be a loving daughter towards my parents. But I didn't know that I was doing that. And so he helped me to see, for example, how my intelligence was this great strength and a great resource that allowed me to understand what was happening in the family system, do well at school, get myself out of a small country town, go to the big city, study. 
at university level, he helped me to see how my social strengths and just my kindness had helped me to form just really beautiful friendships. So things were not happy at home, but I had really, really lovely friends. And that was a life raft for me. And it was my social strengths that allowed me to do that and to keep those connections. And then um, also humour. So that is a strength of mine. It comes out in certain, you know, playful contexts. And and I know I, I look back at school and I was that kid who was able to make people laugh and even make my parents laugh and make my brother and my sister laugh. That was one of the things that I did to kind of just create a bit of levity and, you know, humour is a transcendent strength. Humour is the strength that allows you to, like, rise above mm. and you have that moment of tension, say, in a work meeting and someone just tells exactly the right joke, exactly the right minute, and everyone just cracks up laughing. And for a couple of seconds you rise above, you this big belly laugh, you get oxygenated, and then you come back into the problem from a different perspective. And I think also in my case I learned early on that, you know, sometimes you just have to laugh because otherwise you cry. But he helped me to see that I had, these were true strengths in me that I had been using without realising, and these were my life raft. These were what did help me to get out and create a more intentional and positive adult life. And so that was really critical because then once we got to that point, and look, it took me a little while to accept, yes, I have strengths without mm. feeling like, oh, I can't speak well of myself. Tall and Exactly, <laughs> yeah. the tall poppy syndrome, which is really big in Australia. Australia, right. Yeah. Because what he helped me to do was he helped me to see that I was using my strengths not to see myself as better than anyone else, but I was using my strengths to contribute to the lives of others. And I think that's a really important thing to say about strengths, that everyone has strengths. So strengths aren't the things that make you better than anyone else. They're not there as a source of inflated ego. When you truly connect with your strengths, that's when you realise that these are here to help me contribute positively to the lives of other people. And he helped me to see that. And then he was like, okay, like, what are we going to do? You've got these strengths. Let's shine a light on them. Let's use them more intentionally to craft the adult life that you want. So strengths for me were just a really important part of my own journey. And this all happened at the time where I was about to have my first child. Mm. And so, I mean, put aside the whole professional part for for a minute and, and the fact that I've researched strengths for over a decade. And this was just, I was like, this is how I want to raise my children. I know that they will have strengths and my job, it's a very joyful job as a parent, is to look at each of my children for who they uniquely are, strengths and weaknesses, but to help them see their own strengths, to help them use their own strengths more intentionally so that they have a life well lived and so that they contribute well to other people. So initially the strengths work was much more, I guess, from a personal side, Mm. but then I did start to bring it in much more into my own research program using it in my consulting with corporations and schools and then setting up this strength-based parenting research program to look at, well, I've, I've lived the personal benefit of it. My children are benefiting from it greatly, but that's a sample size of two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm a researcher, so, you know, I, I want to be able to say this is generalisable and we can see this in large samples. And so building that research program to have a look at, you know, what happens to the life of a child or a teenager who when they have parents who help them to see and use their own strengths in an intentional way. And the research uh, program has shown that when you have a strength-based parent, the teenagers and the children who report having a strength-based parent, 
strength-based parenting is a protective factor, firstly. And, you know, that's a terminology we use in psychology to mean that it, it protects young people from states like anxiety and depression. It's a buffer for stress. It's not going to prevent you from the, your child from experiencing stressful life events, but it buffers the way a child re- reacts because they have their own internal toolkit. Mm. They can draw on particular strengths to say, okay, this sucks, but I have some resources that I can bring to this situation. So the first thing we found is that it's a protective factor. And then the second thing we found is that it goes above and beyond that. So it's, it doesn't just protect against some of the darker emotions in life, but it also enhances and enables some of the lighter emotions in life. So what we found in, in the research program is that teenagers and children who have parents who help them to see and use their strengths have high levels of life satisfaction, high levels of positive emotion, more, they're happier, they have more self-efficacy, they have more engagement, they have more persistence, they do better academically at school. So it's, it's both a protective factor and an enhancing or enabling factor in a young person's life. Yeah, and, and it makes a lot of sense. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000 
25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. I think it'd probably be helpful to sort of define what we mean by strengths because yeah, it's not as thrown around as words like authenticity these mm-hmm, days, but mm-hmm. increasingly, and I think in no small part because of a blend of the rise of positive psychology and then at the same time the work that, you know, the Clifton Strengths Finder, which mm-hmm. sort of like came out of a slightly different approach. Yes. The word is used a lot, but I don't think there's a real clear understanding of what we're really talking about. So when you're talking about it, mm. what, do you, what are you talking about? Yeah, I'm so glad you have asked me that question now and I, and, and I feel I should have said that ah, no <laughs> at the start of the interview, but... So you're right, there, there's a, it, it's used a lot and there are lots of different sort of research perspectives to it. And and the way that I look at strengths is that we have firstly two broad kind of buckets of strengths. We have strengths of talent, that's the sort of Gallup work, the Clifton work, and uh, we also have strengths of character. And so the strengths of talent are performance-based, they're skill-based, they're observable. And strengths of character are more to do with the positive aspects of our personality. They're not performance-based. They're less observable because they're to do with our inner landscape, although you can easily learn to start to see character in people. And we all do it anyway. We get a, you know, walk into a room, you get immediate sense mm. of someone's character. So that's that's the first thing to say about strengths, and that's important because most of us, when we think about strengths, we think about the talent-based strengths. So we think about sporting ability or musical ability or artistic ability or IQ. And we don't think to look at these strengths of character, a person's integrity, their honesty, their kindness, their courage, their leadership, their social intelligence. What I'm trying to do with a strength-based parenting approach is to help parents work with their kids to maximize and make the most of the assets, the resources, the, the positive qualities that their kids already have rather than spending all of our energy trying to sort of compensate for what's lacking and what's missing. Fix the flaws or the problems or the weaknesses, yeah. And so it's important that we understand that there are both the talents and the the character strengths because otherwise some parents could inadvertently be taking a strength-based approach but only be focusing on these performance-based abilities and not recognising that actually my children, my child has all of these other strengths and they're the character-based strengths. They're a little bit more invisible. So that's the first thing to say about strengths. Then the second thing to say is that, I mean, most people, if you ask them what a strength is, they'll say strength is something that I'm good at. And that's true, but it's only part of the truth. And so what the positive psychology research field has done is shown us that for something to qualify as a strength, it has to have these three elements. The first one is performance. So it's it's something that I'm good at. The second one is energy. And the third one is self-motivation. So for something to be a true strength as a psychologist, what I'd be looking for, and as a parent, what you'd be looking for is 
where do I see high performance in my child? Meaning where do I see that they're like above average? Now that can be talent-based or it can be character-based. You know, you see kids who have emotional intelligence that's above and beyond their years, Mm -hmm. for example. So where do I see above average performance? Where do I see consistent, a pattern of consistent and repeated high performance? And where do I see a rapid learning curve? So that's the performance part, but you're also looking for energy. So when someone is using a true strength, they're really energized in the process of using that strength. It gives you energy rather than depleting. Exactly. Yeah. And they'll come out of it energized and they'll lose track of time and they'll kind of yearn to, to want to be involved in something that allows them to use their strength. And then the third element is self-motivation. So with a true strength, because it's so it's such an enjoyable experience to be using that strength that you're just naturally seeking out opportunities to use it. And why I think it's important for us to understand those three elements is because sometimes we can be doing something that we're good at, but it doesn't necessarily give us energy. And we're not necessarily so self-motivated to do it. So in, and in psychology, we call this a learned behavior. And we distinguish a learned behavior from a true strength in that in a learned behavior, you're good at it, but you have learned to become good at it because of some sort of external reward. Or So people keep asking you to do it because you're good at it, but it's not energizing for you. And you wouldn't choose to really do it for internal, like self-motivated reasons. So we can make the mistake of par- as parents of seeing our child have high performance in something and thinking, well, that's a strength. I better help my child to use mm. more of that strength without really looking at these signs of energy and self-motivation. Yeah. And in the book, I, I give that sort of example of two children who are good at piano. So they're both, they both have high performance. They're both technically as good as each other. But you've got the one child who you have to nag them to do their practice and they don't leave practice feeling energized. They finish the minute they're supposed to. And then you've got the other child who almost can't walk past the piano without feeling compelled to just quickly sit down and play some little tune. And, you know, they just yearn to be there. So it's not just about what you're good at. It's also about what gives you energy and what you're driven to do. There's this internal yearning, this kind of self-motivation piece that comes with a true strength. Yeah. I mean, what comes to mind when I hear that, it makes perfect sense. My curiosity is this. When so I, I had a friend of mine growing up who would literally skip school because he'd just lie in bed playing guitar all day long. He became phenomenal at it. It's yeah. all he wanted to do. Okay. Like he wouldn't sleep because that's all he wanted to do. Yeah. To me, that's an interesting example of all three, but mm-hmm. it's almost like an aberrant outlier. Yes. And I think if we look at that person, we hold them up as the standard of, okay, so that's how we know. Mm-hmm then that standard is so extreme that we sort of like, we diminish it when we identify something that Mm -hmm. checks all three buckets, but it's not that extreme. And and we almost say, well, it couldn't be my strength because I don't feel like I won't lose my entire life in the name of the pursuit of it. The other thing that I think is really fascinating, I'm so curious what your opinion on this is. Some kids, I totally agree. And and this goes for adults too, right? It's Mm -hmm. like you walk by the piano and you're like, oh, my hand goes there organically. I just want yeah. a new one. I want to play. Yeah. Like there's something about the way my brain is wired. It's like, this is a part of me. Yes. But then there's the other kid where in the beginning, they're like, seriously, I have zero interest in this, but mm-hmm. I have to have a musical instrument for school. Yeah. And so I have to do something. So I'm mm-hmm. going to pick piano. And in yeah. the beginning, there's really not a whole lot of interest, but there's a structure around them that forces them to practice mm-hmm. to a level where they hit like, the most basic level of proficiency, 
like the switch doesn't go on until then. Mm. And then they're like, oh, mm-hmm. this is cool. And at that moment, yeah. it becomes the type of thing where they want to do more and more and more and more and more. Yeah. Exactly. And so what you've hit on there is that there's there's a feedback loop between the performance, the energy, and the self-motivation. And so you can have that same scenario. You could have a student hit that level of proficiency and still continue on with, well, I just have to do it. I'm technically good at it. It's a learned behavior. I have to do it for certain grades. I'm doing it because my parents want me to. I'm doing it because I get praise for doing it. And so it could continue in that way, and it's really just a learned behavior. But it could also be what you're talking about is like a slow burn, what in the book I call a growth strength. So you've got the true strengths where you, they're, they're pretty evident from a reasonably early age, and they become that much more evident in the teen years. And we can talk a little bit later on, if you like, about the sort of how the neuroscientists are catching up with why that is the case. But you can also have this growth strength. It's not immediately evident. You don't see a big sign of it in a younger child, but it's like a slow burn. And I think part of that is that nice feedback loop where they start to get a sense of proficiency and mastery around it, and then they start to enjoy it a little bit more. And then because they're enjoying it a little bit more, they're getting more energy. And because they're getting more energy, they're more self-motivated to practice. And the more you practice, the better you get. So it turns into this beautiful feedback loop. And you know, this I think this is the interesting thing about strengths is that um, they're dynamic, they evolve. It's not a kind of category of like, all right, so these are your weaknesses and they're always in this category and these this is your learned behavior and this is your strength. There's fluidity amongst those three. You know, they can they can change and grow over time. Yeah, which is so interesting also because I've had mixed conversations about that where mm-hmm. the, where some folks are like it is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's been yeah. not so much on the weakness side or the, but on the strength side. It's kind yeah. of like once you hit a certain age, it kind of is what it is. And, and you can maybe strengthen one a little bit or make it more, you know, dominant in your profile. Yeah. But it kind of is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that idea. <laughs> no, neither do I. Because <laughs> I want to, I want to think it's more fluid, like you're explaining. Yeah. Look, my understanding is it's fluid, and but I I totally agree with what you're saying. Even the researchers who are, who are researching this, whether they know it or not, you can see through the way they're researching. Some researchers have what I would call quite a fixed mindset around strengths and talents, and you know you've got these maximize them make the most of them invest only in these don't worry about the areas of lower performance that this is not where you would spend your time and energy and then there are other researchers and scientists and in the book I talk about this idea of strengths flexibility there are other researchers and scientists who say who are probably more along the kind of self improvement line you can improve anything so then the question is where do I want to invest my energy? Where am I going to get the most amount of time mm. or most return on investment for what I seek to improve? Now, what we know about strengths is that they're partly nature and they're partly nurture. So my definition of strengths development is that strengths development equals ability times effort. You or I may be born with a slightly greater ability, let's say swimming. So I may have been born with a slightly greater ability for swimming than you, and that will be to do with um, my muscle constellation and my skeletal frame. And But that's only half of the equation. A big part of the equation is the effort piece and what it is that you choose to kind of repeatedly practice and build up. What the scientists do show us is that if you have a slight sort of genetic advantage, then when you – so you and I put in exactly the same level of swim practice – 
if I'm born with that being more of a strength than you, I will get what the psychologists call the multiplier effect, which means that for every one increment, the, the same one increment of effort that you and I both put in, my ability gets slightly better, mm. slightly better, slightly better. So your feedback is being amplified also mm-hmm. and you want more of it. Yeah. That's not the same as saying there's no point me working on this because I, I wasn't born with the same level of ability as the person swimming laps next to me. So I'm I'm more along the lines of self-improvement and everything can improve and you can get better. And then you just make wise choices about, well, what do I want to get better at? And there are some weaknesses that we do have to work on. <laughs> Everyone thinks that because I'm a strength-based parent that I just ignore the weak spots <laughs> in Nicholas and Emily, and I don't. We are, you know, actively and intentionally working on some of the weaknesses of Nick and Em. And probably I should define what a weakness is too, yeah. right, if you're if we're talking about a definition of a strength. So for me, a weakness, it's a very simple definition. A weakness is some kind of flaw that that prevents us from being effective. And everyone has weaknesses. Even parents. Even parents. (laughs) (laughs) Note yourself, don't let daughter listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, when I work with parents, this is one of the interesting things is that one of the core sort of concerns that someone has about taking on a strength-based parenting approach is that they, they'll come and they'll say, Lee, isn't that a little bit unrealistic? You know, does this mean that I'm just going to ignore all the weaknesses in my children? Does this mean I'm going to create this kind of like snowflake child or overinflated ego who just thinks that all they are is strength? And, and what I found in the work that I've done, so I've done work running workshop, parenting workshops here in the States, in Hong Kong, in Canada and Australia and New Zealand, is that there's this lovely counterintuitive, and that is that as you start taking a strength-based approach with your children, it actually opens up the doorway for you to work on weaknesses in a much more open, less defensive way with your child. Mm. And the reason for that, I think, is that your child knows first and foremost that you see the good in them and that you're going to start from a basis of strength before you go in to work on weaknesses, idiosyncrasies, flaws, faults. But to get back to that idea of a weakness, for me, the way I define it is it's a flaw that compromises your ability to be effective. So everyone has them. And I think there's three really important messages to send to your children. A, everyone has them. B, there's nothing wrong. It doesn't make, there's not, there's not something wrong with you. It's just normal. And then, then C is, well, how many of my work weaknesses do I need to work on? Mm. And and how much time and energy do I put into that? So in the parenting workshops, I get the parents to pick up the pen with their non-dominant hand. So for me, that's my left hand. And I ask them, you know, write your children's names with your non-dominant hand. And then at the end of that exercise, I say, okay, now swap it over to your dominant hand and do the same thing. And it's a it's it's comparable to strengths. We I didn't choose that my left hand was my non-dominant and it, that was just wired into me in the same way that some of my strengths, the, the particular strengths I have, I didn't choose those, you know, that are just kind of there. If you spend a lot of time working with your children on helping them to overcome their weakness, it's like always asking them to write with their non-dominant hand. They'll get better at it. Their writing will get more legible, but it's exhausting it takes a lot more effort and they're never going to be have beautiful crafted handwriting with their non-dominant hand. So invest in strength and look at 
what are the weaknesses that are limiting my ability to be effective? So, I mean, me personally, I have lots of weaknesses. Some of them I'm actively working on because they limit my ability to be effective. Others don't. I'm not a very good cook, for example, and I'm pretty messy at home. But I don't think that limits my ability to be effective. I'm terrible at timekeeping. I'm the worst. You can ask all of my girlfriends. I'm always turning up late. And it used to limit my effectiveness, but now we have smartphones. So I have a meeting with someone and, and my friends all know this. I'll meet them for lunch. And the first thing I'll do is put a little alarm on my phone. So it calls me five minutes before I need to leave because I know I can't keep time myself. So that's not a weakness that I'm choosing to actively work on because it's not limiting my effectiveness because now I have something like a smartphone to, to help me out with it. But then I have other weaknesses that are limiting my effectiveness. And so they're the ones that I work on. And so it's, it's, it's bringing this kind of wisdom into the process. And I think as parents, I mean, our first job is just to love our children, just to love them, you know, and be warm and be kind. And then our second job is to help them grow and improve and develop so that they can grow into a, you know, a fully formed, robust, resilient, good hearted, productive adult. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, what are the things in my child that I see, the weaknesses in my child that I see will limit their effectiveness? And they're the ones that we focus on working on. We don't have to fix everything in our children because there's a lot of stuff that we think, oh, I have to make my child's room tidy and I have to get them organized or whatever it happens to be. But ultimately you just step back and say, is this really going to be a limitation for them in their life? Because if I take away my energy in investing in fixing that weakness and I turn that to amplifying a strength, then they're going to grow up with these strengths that they can use to compensate for any limitations around weakness. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code presson25 at checkout for 25% off impress manicure and presson falsies. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Yeah. I mean, I wonder also if some of the perceived things that might limit um, effectiveness, mm-hmm. we focus on both in ourselves and our kids, even though they're not the really, the, the things that generally move the needle because there's some sort of social judgment around, yes. around having that weakness and having mm-hmm. it seen. Yep. And so part of the reason we focus on that is because we just want to belong more, yeah. even though in truth, that's not the thing that is going to make the biggest difference if we can figure out how to resolve or get better at it. That is such an insightful thing to say. And I think that a lot of the work that I do with parents, and it, and it's actually a big theme in, in my book, is that strength-based parenting is about helping your child to see and use their strengths effectively. But it starts with you as the parent. And part of that is knowing, okay, am I just doing this because of social pressure because I want my child to look a certain way, because then that makes me feel like I'm being judged as I'm doing the yeah. right thing or as even a parent. Because we don't want them, we don't, we perceive that they'll be judged by their peers yeah. if they don't fit a certain mold that we don't, we perceive we're like, we don't want them to feel that pain because we felt it as a kid. Yeah. We assume they're going to feel it too, but maybe they won't. Well, maybe they will, but if you also connect them up with their strengths, right. then they've got this I think the two biggest outcomes of strength-based parenting are cultivating inner resilience in your children and cultivating optimism. And for me, I think that there's two such important outcomes for us to bear in mind as parents because resilience is the ability to deal with, bounce back from, sometimes bounce forward from loss, adversity, challenge. And we need to instill that in our children. And optimism is about the bounce forward. It's about instilling a sense of I'm hopeful for the future. I'm going to reach forward and create a good future. And so it may be that an example just pops up into my my mind with my daughter, Emily, who's 10. And I mean, she's adorable. I love her, of course, because I'm her mom. And she's definitely her own unique girl. And she's she's a tomboy and she's very sporty. And she made a decision this year to and the school that my in, in Australia we have school uniforms. It's, it's from the British system. I don't like it, but you know that's just the way it is. Well, Emily's in fourth grade, and she made a decision this year to wear the so-called boys' uniform. So she's the only girl actually in the whole of the elementary school who wears pants. All of the other girls wear skirts, and she just said it's because I play sporting games at lunchtime and I want to play on the monkey bars and. 
she made that decision and we were going to school and we had a parcel delivered in the morning. And the, so the courier, she answered the door and he didn't look. He just, she had her hair tied back and he just saw the pants. So he said, How, good morning, sir. How are you going? And we had a bit of a giggle at that afterwards and, and we we're in the car. And, and I said to her, you know, some of the kids might tease you today at school and they might tell you you've got the boys' school uniform on. And I said, you just tell them, no, I don't. I have the school uniform. And she said, Mum, I don't care if they tease me. <laughs> you know? It's like, oh, ah, I <laughs> that's was... my stuff, not her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's exactly right, my right. stuff. And so, and I was so wrapped that she was like, I just don't care because I'm comfortable and it's what I want to do. You know, and I was fully preparing her for, here's your answer if they come back. And it was totally my stuff. Yeah. So I think that's part of strength-based parenting is being more tuned to your own stuff and what you are projecting, the fears that you are projecting onto your children. And that they do, I think you're right, they do drive us to sometimes focus more on fixing the weakness because we don't want our child to be in pain or picked on or ostracized because of that weakness, rather than just trusting the process of if I elevate strength, then I don't have to protect my child from this scenario because they've got this inner resource, this strength to be able to deal with that anyway. Yeah. I want to touch on something because it's it's been on my mind a lot and I think it's on the public consciousness a lot, both as, as adults and how we're sort of dealing with the world as it is today mm-hmm. and how kids are dealing with it and as parents, how we can help deal with it. And that is the idea of sort of generalized anxiety. Yeah. Not necessarily in relationship to a particular scenario or to a person, but to mm. sort of the state of things. Mm in the world today mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. like extreme state of blend of uncertainty and vitriol and talk to me about this and how sort of more of a strengths-based approach to parenting can help. Yeah. It's such an important topic that you raise. And I want to say two things. The first is a bit of a disclaimer. Like I, I don't want to sit here and say strengths are the cure to everything, but where I've seen strengths play have a positive role in generalized anxiety is that when we just walking around feeling constantly like in danger under threat and one of the sort of antidotes to that is a sense of internal stability and a sense of okay I can't control what's happening on the outside but I've got this I've got an anchor point I've got confidence that I can navigate my way through and that's what strengths do so I see strengths as this like transportable psychological toolkit doesn't matter where you go your strengths are always going to be with you so when you're faced with these overwhelming feelings of anxiety uncertainty that to know that okay it's okay I've got these kind of anchor points that I can go to but I wouldn't say strengths in and of themselves are the full solution and I'm a big advocate of mindfulness Mm. and I think that that's a really important part of bringing mindfulness into a strength-based approach because what mindfulness does is, well, it does lots and lots of different things, but one of the things it does for kids and for teenagers, like at a bare minimum, is to help them to, to have a little bit of a, just create that pause of, okay, my nervous system is overregulated right now. I can feel tension in my throat. I'm thinking this. So be able to step back and and explore with curiosity the thoughts and the feelings and the physiological reaction and just question, do I need to be this way in this moment? And so it helps with that sort of initial pause response and re-regulating and calming down your nervous system. 
And then that's where strengths come in, I think, is like, okay, so I've calmed myself down. What do I do next? We often use mindfulness as a tool to help us understand negative thinking patterns. But I think when you combine mindfulness with strengths, then you you can do so much more with mindfulness because what I've done in working with a lot of kids in school is helping them to be to go into the, that mindful state when they are using their strengths. And what that does is it helps them to embody what it feels like to be strong, embody what it feels like to be using your strengths. So you're not just working on teaching them about stress and negative thinking patterns. You're also saying, okay, in this moment we're using a strength, let's be mindful, let's tune into what am I thinking, what am I feeling, what am I hearing? And then it's like a place to return to. They know what it actually feels like. So my son Nicholas, for example, he's a basketballer. And when he's shooting a basket and he's really in the zone, he says to me, Mom, it's like telescope. It's like just this tunnel vision and it's almost like my arms are talking to the net. So he knows that feeling of that moment when he's in a moment of strength and then that helps him to return back to it. So I think strengths help with anxiety at a at a kind of like a cognitive level, like a confidence level, like doesn't matter where I am, I've got this transportable toolkit. But then when you combine the mindfulness piece, it also helps at that more embodied level. Mm, yeah, it gives you the meta-awareness to actually understand when you're in it and what does it feel like when you're in it. Exactly, like yeah. 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 And it occurs that, you know, I think there's probably also a flip side, which is that Kierkegaard said anxiety is a dizziness of freedom, mm-hmm. that we try to eliminate every opportunity for any experience of suffering or pain mm-hmm. or anxiety mm-hmm. from from our own lives and and then as parents for you know from yeah. our kids lives too yeah yeah but maybe elimination is not actually the goal maybe like a certain of that is actually a, a signal of investment a signal mm-hmm. that you know is completely natural and the goal yeah. is you know it, it 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 must be there if uncertainty is there and mm-hmm. uncertainty must be there if possibility is there so yeah. we don't want to actually eliminate it we want to more what you're saying learn how to identify and maybe start to try and figure out, okay, what is a certain amount of generative, healthy unease versus something that starts to lead to dysfunction? Yeah, totally agree. And, you know, as I said, the research program has shown that strength-based parenting is a protective factor. Mm. And so it's not about being the helicopter parent or in Australia, we have this term, the lawnmower parent. Have you heard of that no. term? So, you know, you just visualize the parent with the lawnmower, the motor mower, like kind of mowing out this path in front of their child. So <laughs> the child doesn't have to hack away yeah, at anything right. or, you know, stumble or fall. And it, that's not what strength-based parenting is about. It's not, it's not about protecting your children from suffering, from uncertainty. It's about instilling in them this internal toolkit. So when they face those things, they learn that they can cope so they're less afraid of them the next time around. And as you said, this you know this whole idea of post-traumatic growth, and even if you're not talking about trauma, if you're just talking about this, this the opportunity that can come from uncertainty is to just be comfortable to lean into that. But you can't ask a child to lean into certainty and fear if they have no internal anchor point. I mean, that's just, that's terrifying. But when they've got an internal anchor point, they know that they're not going to fly away or be knocked down. There's something kind of sitting so they, they can sit within that uncertainty and process it and move forward. And that's where I think strengths are really, really helpful. And I think strength-based parenting does two things of equal importance and it gets back to the kind of resilience optimism stuff. I think the, one of the biggest gifts of strength-based parenting is not that you you have to create a smooth path for your child. 
It's that you're teaching your child that they can be empowered in this process. They can learn and grow through it. And when life is going well, they can really use the multiplier effect. Like they can really like amplify and gain and make the most out of life during life's purple patches. Well, what I found in working with strength-based parenting is some people confuse it with sort of positive parenting and just putting on this Pollyanna smile and avoiding anything negative in your life. And that's not what strength-based parenting is about. It's about embracing the duality of life. But the anchor point, the middle point is your strengths. And, you know, my own life has taught me that the suffering I've had, that's really defined who I am. That's made me who I am. So I would never be a person to say, avoid darkness, avoid suffering, avoid uncertainty. But at the same time, you don't want to just throw your children into that with no resources because that's when you end up getting the effects of trauma. So as we sit here, this is called Good Life Project. If I offer out that phrase to you, to live a good life, Mm -hmm. what comes up? For me, I think living a good life is feeling good, functioning well, and doing good for others. Thank you. My pleasure. Hey, thanks so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we've included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode and then share the Good Life Project love with friends. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.